0: you in the hard times. We praise you in the good times. We praise you in the quiet times. We praise you in the loud times. And Lord, I just know that praising you we are lifted up. Be with us. We ask Jesus' precious name. Please be seated. It's good to see that Keith and Fran are here. Um, and uh, if you've read the bulletin that came out this week, you would have seen that uh, we have a memorial service for Melody, for Fran's mom, um, on Tuesday. And I don't know if you can't make it, uh, if you can't make it on Tuesday, 10.30, it's gonna be right here, then maybe you can stay today for the fellowship lunch and you can connect with Keith and Fran before they leave and uh, pass on your good wishes and your blessings and your prayers for them. Uh, I, I read the posts that they placed online and. I understand that Melody was in pain, and that uh, while um, it was uh, a loss, it is also a blessing as well. And we praise God through the difficult things, we praise God through the good things, but we also hold on to the hope of the second coming and seeing Melody as well, again, so that is good news for us as well. Uh, but if you can be there, please be there at 10.30 on Tuesday, and it will be inside the uh, community room to the side. And this is a beautiful photo that you see up here that was posted on Facebook, and so i encourage you to come and see me. Keith and Fran are sitting over here. Today, obviously, not only are we gonna do church here and worship here, and we're gonna have our Bible study classes afterwards, but we have fellowship lunch as well, and, and I hope that you stay for fellowship lunch. If you haven't planned on bringing anything, don't worry. Uh, we have enough. Please stay and join us for that, and if you want, Stay on a little bit longer for Barah, which is the very first time we're doing this. It's our, it's our afternoon where we're going to do at two o'clock, a little festival of music and art, and you've seen some of the great photography and the beautiful things that we're going to share, and we'll celebrate the creation that God has done through us, and we're just blessed and honored to be part of this as well. So I encourage you to stay for Barah at 2 p.m. today. This weekend is the last weekend for you to register for the One Project. Uh, we have 51 people from our church going out to Seattle with us, and so if you're interested, then please speak to me this weekend and let's make sure that we get you to join us as well. Um, We have looked at 60 plus different youth pastors and all the youth pastors that we are interested in are gonna be at the One Project, so if you wanna meet them early and uh, discuss and greet them and so you're welcome to come and join us as well inside there. And next Sabbath, next Sabbath, what's happening next Sabbath? See that, 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 too fast, too fast. (laughs) Next Sabbath we have one life, it's new, uh it basically it's it's for anybody who's 13 to 17. i will check your birth certificate 13 to 17 and uh if we're going to spend the entire day together so come to church come to the bible study class and then afterwards from noon all the way through to 9 pm we're going to have lunch and dinner and do lots of games and lots of activities we'll celebrate one life together and i encourage you to bring your teens and bring your friends and come and join us for one life next sabbath but let's pray and then let's dive into the word today heavenly father I thank you, Lord, for the way that you've protected us, and I thank you, Lord, for the scripture that we have before us, and I ask God for your spirit to be in us. Forgive us of our sins. Bring our hearts to a place where we may listen to the unctions and the voice and the groanings of the spirit that we may repent of our ways and come back fully to you. May we be committed to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We are in the Book of Kings, and I hope you've all got your worship guides. If anybody needs a worship guide, just put your hands up. This looks like this, and we will make sure you get a worship guide. There you go, at the back. Peter's gonna do that. That's great. And so if you need a worship guide, put your hands up. But in the worship guide, inside here you'll see that we're in a series called Prophets and Kings, and we're in the Book of Kings the next few weeks last week we covered first kings chapters one to four and this week we're in chapters nine to eleven so you're welcome to read the passages ahead do that kind of thing and we also have a connect card if you want to fill that in let us know any comments questions prayers want to get involved receive any data fill it in put it inside that little container over there any of the offering altars at the end you're welcome to do so we'd love to stay connected with you but we are in kings and last week we ch- covered the first four chapters and I just, I wonder whether you remember, we started and we said that the children of Israel, they're over here and they are in exile. So the Babylonians have captured them, they're demolished, Jerusalem is just a devastation to them, they don't understand what's going on, and they're crying to God and saying, what happened? Did you leave us? Did we do something wrong? And God says, well, let me tell you the story. And you have presumed when you read Kings, that you're supposed to understand Exodus, the parting of the sea. You're supposed to understand judges and all the great leaders that God tried to work through. You're supposed to understand Samuel when they eventually said, we're not satisfied with God, you telling us what to do. We would prefer, in fact, if you just let us have a king. And they chose King Saul and they chose King David and eventually we end up with Solomon and they are seeing the story of how the decisions they made brought them to exile. And that's the battle that they're right now, trying to comprehend this. So the question that you'll always have as you're going through Kings is this. What do I have to reevaluate in my life? And what is it about the image of God that has helped me to transform who I am and transform my view of God as well? That's what's going to be overarching throughout this entire story inside here. God is very silent through Kings in the first few chapters here, over some of the acts that Solomon did. And you remember Solomon became king in, a, in this beautiful little delicate dance between Bathsheba, his mother, and Haggith, the mother of Adonijah, his older brother. And then Solomon, when he became king, in godfather, Italian mafia style, wipes out everybody uh, that could be an opposition to him. And he says that it's God's will that all these people be wiped out. But you never see God saying, thumbs up. You just see him saying, I'm pretty sure God said we should do this. And he takes them all out. So he does this, and then you have the great story where he asks for wisdom, and when he goes in the dream, he asks for wisdom, God gives him wisdom. And in that wisdom, the great story that's shared with that is where the two prostitutes come with the one baby, and he pulls out in his hand a sword, showing that his wisdom is driven by his power now. And he holds it up and tells this great story, promises all sorts of things, people are in awe and just wondering where this king is gonna take it because the kingdom is gonna become an empire and he is the one who's gonna take us on that journey. So, in chapters four through to eight, leading up to chapter nine inside here, and we're in page 199, by the way, so if you take your pew Bibles out, you're welcome to take those Bibles home with you, share them with friends, you're welcome to write inside them, put them back inside the pew if you want, But at page 199, which is basically 1 Kings chapter 9. Uh, For those of you on the Android devices, good luck finding that. Um, But uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, all the way through 4 to 8, what you deal with here is that he builds the temple, he builds the palace, and then he has this great service, 120,000 sheep are sacrificed, a great service where he prays to God and asks God to now bless what he has done in his wisdom now archaeologists all suggest that Solomon you know and he married an Egyptian woman first of all that Solomon himself when he was building the temple copied some of the plans and the grandeur of the Egyptian Empire because he wanted to make it better than the Egyptians he wanted Israel to be known larger than anything else as well with that and so we get to chapter 9 here verse 1 as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. Your Bible maybe says desired, mine says desired in the ESV. Maybe your Bible also says fancied. Some translations, translators fancied. All that he fancied he had done. And then the Lord appeared to him a second time. Because Solomon was wise enough to say, This is what I want. I'm going to get it done. And he did. He did with a lot of forced labor. He did all that he fancied and all that he desired. And the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, it says here, and he approached him and said to him these beautiful words that comes down here in verse 3, where he said to him, I have consecrated this house that you've built. By putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there all the time. God says to him, my Name, my eyes, and my heart. I will protect this temple, and I will lift up all that you have done. It's fantastic. Until you get to verse 4, which is straight after he said he's going to protect the temple, Solomon's really happy, and then he hears this. And as for you, Solomon, wise, wise Solomon, let me give you the double if. So with verse 5, he says, if you obey, verse 6, I will bless you. Verse 7, if you disobey, I will exile you. Verse 8. If you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will exile you. I say, whoa, 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 what this faithfulness question is gleaming right in his life because right here, he's saying, God, I gave you you gave me wisdom. I'm I'm following you. I'm really excited about being king. And God says to him, I want to bless you, and I want you to live forever, and I want you to be able to have your generations continue, but. You must obey me. Now, there is a difference between David and Solomon. And David, as we will learn as the story has gone on, David was I've considered faithful to God. But David did some horrendous things, right? When he saw Bathsheba, he arranged for Joab to kill Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, her husband, and say, let's send him off there. And even sent him with the commands that he would go to the front line and die. I mean, he was just horrific. Yet God considered him faithful because he had the ability to repent and to come back and to try to follow God. Whereas Solomon, on the other end, he's not as faithful as God would like him to be. He is not so much in love with God and following God as much as he does. And so this section of the story here is often referred to as the doxology of judgment. Now, doxology means praise God, right? Right? It's the praising God of judgment. And judgment, for some people, is very scary. People are like, "Ah, I don't want to be judged. But in this case here, and if you understand judgment in the Bible, it's always release of tension and anxiety. And that's what he's doing inside here, saying, let me praise God, and let me show you how I can take away the sin from here. See, today, we have very carefully separated disasters from sin. Right? Right? We've broken all the connections between disasters and sin. So when uh, an earthquake happens, you've got what we would call the crazies. who say, well, you know why there's an earthquake in this town? Because they're sinning in that town, right? And then other people are saying, well, actually, we don't really believe that. It's because they're sinning in that town that that earthquake happened. And so we separate all the disasters from sin. And we've done wise to do some of that separation because in the story of John 9, where Jesus comes with his disciples before the blind man, they said to him, well, surely this guy's blind because of his parents or sins that he's done. And Jesus says to them, no, that's not the story here. Not always is the suffering that somebody goes through as a result of a sin that their parents or ancestors or they have done in this case. However, however, And here's the hard word, Genesis 3.16 still stands that there are consequences to sin, that sin has caused disasters in this planet. And somehow we have like separated that entirely and God is saying, I need you to understand the whole Bible, not just one verse. You could take John 9 out of context and just say, well, basically no consequences involved in anything I do wrong. And you could take Genesis 3.16 and say, everything that bad that happens in my life is because I've done something wrong or somebody else has done something wrong in my ancestry or my parents or something like that. But when you put both texts together, when you put the whole story together, you get a different picture. Turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. It's page 602 in your Bibles, Luke chapter 13. And this is an interesting text because this is an important text for us to understand how Jesus maps together and pulls us all together. Luke chapter 13, there were some present at the very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's something connected to the story inside here that God is saying, what I'm looking for when I say I need someone to follow me is someone who understands what confession and repentance is all about. Hence, David was this great confessor and repenter of his ways, and Solomon is not so much inclined in that way. Paul gives us some further counsel on this in Romans chapter 6. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, page 651. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And this is really important because this text here, what I would do in my Bible is I'd mark the text, line it up so that you can actually see the correct connection with it. But Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? This is what Paul says. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can you who died to sin still live in it? In other words... Don't make excuses for all this kind of stuff. Forget all that God has done for you. And God is, the story of Kings is telling you, remember in 1 Kings 3 and in 1 Kings 8, I give you great promises first. And with these great promises, there is an if and then a then. And if you obey and you stay connected to me and you follow me and you repent of your ways because we all mess up, I will bless you and you will prosper. But if not, you will be sent to exile. And God is constantly saying to us, I want you to understand that there is a tremendous benefit and power to actually asking God forgiveness. And when you do, you experience it, and somebody else experiences the joy with it. When my mother, uh, when I was young, about maybe 12 years old, my mother had some problem, I can't remember what it was, but her lung collapsed, and she ended up in hospital. And uh, I was, so all the family came to visit us, and I was 12, I think, at the time, and all the family was there, and uh, I remember we were going to go through the afternoon, after Sabbath, after church, we'd done that, and we're going to go now visit my mom, and my dad was at the hospital staying all day with my mom. And so I said to my uncle, who had a brand new car, if I could uh, get permission, I'd like to reverse the car because I know how to drive. My dad taught me when I was nine years old to drive. And so I said, let me reverse all the cars out and line them all up, you know. And so the whole family got outside and looking through the windows of the house and I got inside this brand new car and I put it in reverse and didn't realize that this brand new car had an automatic choke. In the old days, you you had a choke that you pulled out. This one had it built in. Japanese warriors, you know. (laughs) They do these things to cars, and so here it was. It was automatic, and I accelerated, and I accelerated so fast that I took off, and uh, and the car reversed right into the back of my dad's car, and it was a pretty new car, and it crumpled because it's a new Japanese car, which is basically made out of tuna fish metal. So it just it just crumpled into my dad's old '72 car, and so poof, solid like concrete inside it, and and I just stood outside like. Uh, uh, don't know what happened there. Now my uncle obviously was livid. Uh, I, I think that he was attempting to murder me uh, slowly, and uh, but he remembered that his sister was in hospital, and I was the son, and so he let it go for a while. So now I go to the hospital. Uh, it was just I, I've wiped out all of those moments straight after that until I arrive at the hospital. I'm in the parking lot in the car park, and I see my dad, and I and I I go up to my dad, and I confess everything to him because I'm, I'm mortified, I'm mortified about this, and I take all of my confession, all my repentance, and I place it on my dad's hands, and on his shoulders, and my dad says, well, your uncle's an idiot. Who lets a 12-year-old reverse a brand new car? And I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then my dad said, we've got insurance, he's got insurance, it will be fine. Wipe that stuff off your face, go in and see your mom, and make sure you're good and happy inside there. Don't worry about it at all. And what I didn't realize as a child is that my dad took on all the emotional anguish. He had to go and have the hard conversation with my uncle, He had to go and sort out all the paperwork and apologize and do all this great work. Me, I was just happy. I was like, give me another car. I'm off. I'm okay. Everything's good. And this is the beauty of confession and forgiveness. When you actually take the confession and you give it to God, it's new. God handles it. He wipes it all off. He looks at you and says, go take another car. Go drive. It's fine. Everything's good for you. You don't understand that he's the one who's handling it all. And God is saying for Solomon, I want you to be that kind of follower. You're going to mess up. Even though you're wise, I want you to learn how to pass it off to me. And I tell you this, we need to learn how to confess and repent to each other. We hurt each other. We need to learn how to confess to each other. We need to actually make sure we have peace with each other. We need to pass that off to somebody else and say, I've done wrong. Parents need to do that with their kids, and kids need to do that with their parents, and we need to do that with our wives and husbands and our, and our relationships and all those beautiful things. I just saw yesterday uh, the news that Evan and uh, Crystal got engaged. Yeah? All right, all right. That's fantastic. It's great. So rule number one, forgive each other all the time, especially Evan. <laughs> forgive each other all the time. Congratulations to you guys, but forgive each other, and when you, yes, absolutely, absolutely. You want to have something strong in a relationship with friendship or marriage, you got to learn how to forgive each other. Give each other a second go, and a third time, and a fourth time. As many as Jesus has given you, you keep on giving as well, and and the more you do this, the stronger you will be, but Solomon, for some reason, he doesn't get this. Now, the story continues in chapter 9, verse 10. It says here, at the end of 20 years, we're coming to the end of Solomon's life here, he had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, and starts to describe a great little transaction that takes place here. And it's really weird because Hiram is is the king of Tyre, which is the king of north, basically, of Beirut and and, and the kind of territory up there. Solomon's in the middle with Israel, and he's doing this business with this guy. and And as he's doing the business with the guy, the guy gives him a ton of gold, like four tons of gold, all right? And in return for all this gold and all these great deals, Solomon says to him, I'm going to give you 20 cities and Hiram's like, love it. So then he travels down to visit the 20 cities and he says to them, "What? what? what? these cities, these cities are called Kabul. They're disgusting. I don't like them. They're the worst deal in the entire thing. But as soon as he has said this, he gave Solomon another 120 talents of gold. In other words, Solomon is such a good businessman that he has no morals, no scruples, as ever. He makes this great deal, and they record in the Bible here, you see, look at this, he got 120, he sells them 20 old cities, and they think it's great, and they give him another 120 talents of gold. Ha, Solomon's such a great king, but this is what he's doing. With forced labor, he continues this. The story continues all the way down here with tons of gifts that they keep on bringing to him, and then verse 25 of chapter 9 says this, three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord. And he made these offerings in front of everybody so that publicly he looked like he was a very religious fellow. He would attend church three times a year, which some of you (laughs) no, no, it's two times a year. Christmas and Easter. So uh, he did this, and he does this public affair because he's trying to prove this kind of way, and then verse 26 says this, King Solomon even built a fleet of ships, which you remember the Israelites, they didn't like the sea, the Greeks and the Egyptians had this, but he built a ton of ships, and they brought so much gold, it was 420 talents, which today would be the equivalent of about half a billion dollars, not million, 500 million dollars. Just one ship was bringing that amount of gold to him. So you can imagine here that the Bible's telling you that this guy, King Solomon, has become a great empire. He has built this entire place here where people are constantly saying to him, you are amazing. I don't understand how this happened, but you are amazing. So much so that chapter 10 says this, now when the queen of Sheba heard of the famous Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. So she comes along. And she, just because she looks at it, not because of the romantic connection, you know, if you look at the art for the last 700 years, whenever you see she, the Queen of Sheba and you see Solomon, it looks romantic or it looks businesslike. But it's not about romance and it's not about business. It's about remembering that Solomon is great, all-powerful. And when she looks at his power, and she looks at his wisdom, and she looks at his wealth, it says in the Bible here in verse 5, there was no more breath in her. He took her breath away. Isn't that great? It's kind of like Top Gun, Tom Cruise, you know. That kind of thing took place. So it's just, it's just this incredible thing. She just like, oh, I have nothing to say. It's just so overwhelming. Verse 6, though, begins with her final response to him. And she does this really beautiful prayer, and I think that God inspired her to say these words because at the end of these words, she uses this really interesting phrase at the end of verse nine here, it says, "'Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted you, "'set you on the throne of Israel, "'because the Lord loved Israel forever. "'He has made you king, "'that you may execute justice and righteousness.'" Justice and righteousness. Isaiah, You know, sometimes when you wanna memorize Bible texts, it's easier if there are numbers of the same, so here's an easy text for you to remember: Isaiah 5:7, Amos 5:7. Isaiah 5:7, Amos 5:7. Both of those 5:7. Okay, you got that? 1957 Chevy 57, 5:7. All inside your head. Connected all the dots. Both those texts say this: If you're going to be a king, make sure that you deliver justice and righteousness. And Queen, the Queen of Sheba here sees Solomon, all the wealth power. And in those two texts, Isaiah 5 and 7, she quotes those passages. She quotes those ideas. She says there should be justice and righteousness. Then she, it says here, gave the king 120 talents of gold and a great quantity of spices. As a result of seeing how great he was, she gives him gold and spices. Now, most people, when they read this, and maybe your Bible says the same thing, mine says spices, but if you look at the original language, the word spices is translated in Isaiah 60 as frankincense. A Gentile queen, a royalty, appears to worship the king from the line of David with gold and frankincense. You ever heard a story similar to that? Christmas, right? You read about the story of the kings from the east who came, Gentiles, with gold and frankincense. Matthew knows this. Matthew writes the whole story of the gospel to let you know that Jesus is the line of David. So whenever you're going to have a real king come forward, he's going to bring gold and frankincense. And of course, when Solomon was king, he got gold and frankincense. And of course, the kings, when they come from the east, he doesn't care about all the other gifts they bring. He just cares about the gold and frankincense because he wants to let you know that there is a king who is going to be the true king, who is the king who's over the entire empire, the entire universe that's entirely different, who will deliver justice, and righteousness. Verse 13, King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba all that she fancied, all that she desired, whatever she asked. So he must have made some kind of great treaty with her. And then an interesting verse pops up here that Pastor Elias mentioned inside his devotional, as pastor reflection this week. Verse 14, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Where else have you ever heard the number 666. Six, six. Oh, I wonder, maybe it's at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation that nobody wants to talk about and so maybe it's inside there. It is because it's the number of imperfection. One number off from 777 just that one degree looks so similar not quite like but slightly off but it's a number that represents evil and this 666 inside here is the number of gold that he received from his taxes and forced labor on people. And I think they understood this, and that's why they wrote it down inside here. Verse 23, then King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And the Bible continues describing that his land was so far that he had territory throughout all of the known biblical world Solomon's empire reached. In fact, it says here in verse 27 that the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Isn't that amazing? He had so much gold that when people brought him silver, they said, I just throw that away. I don't need that. What I want is gold, not silver. If he hadn't known about platinum, I don't know. But well, there you go. Verse 28 all the way through down here, there's an interesting little story where he explains a little bargaining thing that he does where he goes and gets chariots uh, and he gets horses from Egypt, which was forbidden. Again, you notice how Solomon is doing all sorts of things that are forbidden from what God had asked him to do. Do not ever buy Egyptian horses for some reason. So don't do that. And he goes and does this. And he effectively becomes the arms dealer of the Middle East. That's what he does. He takes the the Egyptians, all the horses, and all their horses and all their chariots, and he transfers it over to the kings of the north, to Syria, and says to them, hey, anybody who wants to transfer inside the Middle Territory here has to pay him taxes. He becomes the absolute arms dealer of the Middle East. In fact, he does what we do today. He supplies his enemies because they are his allies. Later on, they turn out to be his enemies and use the same weapons and missiles and guns against them. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But the British and the Americans tend to copy that pattern a lot. We do, don't we? We just don't understand how it works. If we had read Kings, maybe we would have stopped this. But I don't know, it continues this way down here. And so what you learn by the time you get to chapter 11 here is this. All of the wisdom and all of the wealth he has used for forces of injustice, rather than justice, and not righteousness. Harmful things instead. And God knows this. So in verse 11 of chapter 11, verse 1, it says this: Now, King Solomon, here comes the clincher. Now, King Solomon, now be prepared for the end part of this story. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with whom was the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, Hittite women from nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people of Israel, "You shall neither enter into marriage with them." neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these though that he loved. That's what he did. You know, when people have read these stories, they've often referred to the unequally yoked passage of scripture. You heard of those texts? You should not be unequally yoked. And people struggle through this because what we've done is we've we've made the unequally yoked originally like some kind of idea that it's referring to uh, ethnicity, so we try to keep it just one ethnic. So Israel, Israelis marry Israelis only. You know, Swedes marry Swedes, Danes marry Danes, that kind of stuff. We keep it that way. But that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about religious fidelity. It's talking about being connected and understanding that you both have the same faith together. Now, I have sat down with couples and I sat down with many, many different people who are married to somebody who doesn't believe in God And I tell you this, that it it pains my heart when you are with someone who doesn't believe in God. You may not agree on all the things about God, and actually show me two people who do, and I'd be amazed, (laughs) but but if you both believe in God, you both believe that there is God, you both believe in the Word of God, you start a journey that actually gives you strength in the place that you wanna go. I've sat down with people who think that that's what marriage was supposed to be about, that it's just about love, right? You just love the person and everything's fine with that. Sure, love is fine. And, and believe me, I'm not saying that you can only marry people who are just Adventists, okay, because there are many psychos. Oh, there. I could name six. Uh, you know, you, you, you are not, I'm not talking about a title. I'm talking about the fact that you're looking for someone who has the heart, someone who understands what it is to be connected to God. And God says this, look, if you marry someone who doesn't believe this, you won't get it. And he gives you lots of examples in the Bible. He talks about Ruth. She was a Moabitess, you know, no problem. But she said, your God will be my God. We believe in the same God. Uriah, Uriah, get this. Uriah, who married Bathsheba, was a Hittite. Many people believe that Hittites didn't exist until about uh, the early 1900s when they found 10,000 clay tablets that showed that the Hittites actually existed. And the Bible records this, which is a beautiful part of the story inside here. But his name means, Yahweh is my light. That was Uriah. He committed himself to God inside here. So God is saying this, if you're connected to someone who doesn't believe in God, it is going to be hard for you. When I was a child at this church in East London, I had this, there was this lady who was our youth leader. And uh, she taught me so much stuff. She She had us come over to her house all the time and we'd hang out there and she had a prayer room and she fed us and she looked after us. It really connected us as young people together. But she was married to someone who didn't believe in God. And he was very... He was a very nice man, very respectful of who she was, supported her with everything that she wanted to do, but he didn't believe in God. And I remember her telling, not to ask, but sitting down with the adults and we were listening to the conversations and she would share how when they were in times of crisis and she would pray, sometimes he would join her. And it just thrilled her heart. She was on the same page, at least that he was willing to pray with her at those points. There's something about the ability to be able to pray together, to confess to each other, to understand that there is one God that holds us together. And I longed for her to be able to work some way, and she was very respectful of him. She didn't feel the burden she had to convert him, but she did understand that it was really, really hard. The Bible says this in verse three, that he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. So if you think marriage is about sex, oh my goodness me. I don't know. Did he have a marriage with all of these people? Was he really married to all of them? Well, marriage is much, much more than that. As we learned last week, when we talked about the fact that they used women this way and they felt there was power in this way, and so they had the sexual power, this is what took place. Solomon understands this, but his wives turned away his heart. But when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and this is what tells you, that he went and worshiped other gods. He compromised because he loved some of them. And so they said, hey, come to my temple and worship da 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 Build me a house over here and worship da-da-da-da-da. And he started to compromise himself in all of his areas because with his wisdom, he was focusing on the empire rather than focusing on following God. And the more that he focused on his empire, the more that he walked away from actually being able to be faithful with God inside this. So verse nine tells us this. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. The God of Israel appeared to him twice, and he said to him in verse 11 that he is going to tear the kingdom away from him. Now he gives him some warnings, and he gives him some insight. He says, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. I won't get, your servant will take it on, and I'm going to save Jerusalem. Because remember, I told you I would do that. And because of David, because he was so good, I'm going to do something great for David. I'm going to save Benjamin and Judah, the two tribes of the south. But the kingdom will split. The kingdom will go away. Because you have not understood what it is to stay following to me. And so then God allows those who are already biting at the heels, waiting to attack, to start to increase their attacks. It gives you a guy called Hadad, who was from Adam, who Joab, remember Joab? He was the CIA director for King David. He had done all the black ops stuff, and he had actually killed all this entire village. But Haddad had got away, went to Egypt, hid inside Egypt. And obviously, Pharaoh must have protected Hadad and must have kept him as an alliance and not allowed him to attack Solomon since Solomon had married his daughter. But as time goes on and Solomon gets older and weaker and tired, he starts to allow him to come forward. And Rezon from the north as well started to attack as well the king of Syria. So you've got those two allies. Remember how he was the arms dealer in the middle? And you had Egypt to the south, and you had Syria to the north, and still he was doing all the dealing, and now they start to turn on him. They start to attack him. They start to come back on him. And he realizes that he's not going to be able to last with this, but there is one promise that still has stayed strong all the way through this story. And as the children are sitting in exile, and they're listening to the stories of Moses, and they're listening to the stories of the judges, and they're listening to the stories taking place with Samuel in the beginning of Kings, and they understand Solomon, they still remember there is one thread all the way through that God says. I have people, I have people, and I love you people, and I will raise up for you people a savior from Genesis all the way through, I'm gonna bring it up. As he says in Revelation, before the world was created, he knew that he was gonna do this, and he says, I'm gonna raise up somebody. There will be somebody from the line of David who will arrive, and he will bring justice and righteousness, and his name is Jesus. And that's what they need to hold on to. And that's what we need to hold on to. We need to spend time with the Lord, asking him to give us courage through all the chaos that we go on. So I'm gonna pray with you a little bit here, and then after we've prayed, I'm gonna ask the and the team to lead us in our final songs this morning. Lord, I wanna thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. I wanna thank you for the promise that you've given from day dot of creation all the way through. Lord, there are things that we struggle with, there are things that we have anxiety over, and Lord, I'd want to be able to take our poverty and our pain and our worry. Lord, bring the justice and righteousness into our lives. For those of us who've got marriages are struggling, bring the justice and righteousness in our lives. For those of us that have lost people that we love, bring justice and righteousness in our lives. For those of us, Lord, who are trying to work out what to do with our lives, bring justice and righteousness in our lives. May all that you have blessed us with, God, all the gifts that you have given us, God, all the things that we are just privileged to be able to do, to be able to live, to be able to breathe and know that we have life, may we be able to use those for justice and righteousness. May we make places of beauty and strength and encouragement and hope. May people come into our lives and just see that you are living inside us. May we be able to transform our communities. May we transform this world as we hold on to your soon return, Lord. But until that new earth and until we're recreated, until justice and righteousness prevail everywhere, may we hold on to that this day, today. In Jesus' precious name, You Bow your heads with me. May Jesus bless you with gentleness and a heart that is tender. May Jesus bless you with strength against all principalities. May Jesus bless you with compassion and care. May Jesus bless you with courage, daring to be who you are. May Jesus bless you with openness, understanding, and respect. And may Jesus bless you with the power to make Jesus all.